Well, for most of us, this word right here is synonymous with the word success, right? To be able to do whatever it is that you want to do, uh, when you want to do it, and to actually have the money to pay for it, right? That is pretty much uh, the American dream, right? Or at least what it is that most of us um, envision or think of when it comes uh, to the American dream. And before we just kind of dismiss all of this, um, this whole notion as, as nothing more than, um, than the fantasy, perhaps, uh, of some kind of an overactive ego, right? Part of what actually drives all of this and fuels all of this for every single one of us is the fact that, um, that we've actually seen it, right? We've actually seen it. And once, once you see it, um, you can't unsee it. Right? Think about it. All of our heroes, all of our role models, all the people that we esteem both publicly and privately, all of them, whether you're 15 or 25 or 45 or 65, all of them appear to operate completely unhindered by financial and oftentimes even relational restraint. They all appear to be completely independent. And see, for you, there might actually be more to it even than just that. If, uh, depending on how you were raised, if you grew up in a home um, where, where there was this constant worry uh, about money, um, not so that you could have everything that you wanted, but just simply so that you could have what you needed. Or, or perhaps for you, if, if you spent a season of your life living with family members or maybe even um, other people who weren't family, um, not to make your dream home happen, but simply because, um, because you didn't have a home, right? If that's you... Um, then chances are for you, the, the whole idea of independence, this isn't a nice to have, uh, this is a have to have, right? Because the whole thought of ever going back and, and redoing that or making your family re-experience that, I mean, that's not just simply motivating for you, that's, that's absolutely terrifying for you. Because you don't want to ever have to depend on anyone or anything like that uh, again. And see, here's the part of this whole thing that kind of baffles us, Right? Because why is, it, um, why is it that whenever we hear stories of people who have, have made it in this regard, why is it that we almost always hear stories of those very same people making a whole series of decisions that kind of leaves us thinking where they, they not only self-destruct, but we hear about this and we think to ourselves, okay, you could not have possibly thought, right? You could not have possibly thought that is a good idea. That never works out for anybody, Right? How in the world could you possibly be so dumb? Right? That's what we think. And we, because we think, listen, if that ever happens for me, right? because listen, I'll be able to handle it. Right? If I ever get an opportunity like that, if that kind of a, a chance ever comes my way, um, I'll, I'll be able to make the right decisions. I'll be able to do the right thing. I'll be able to do the smart thing. I, I'll, be, I'll be able to handle that. And so off we go. Right? Off we go. And time goes by. And the truth is, for most of us, for most of us, it doesn't happen big enough. And for most of us, it doesn't happen fast enough. And when it doesn't happen fast enough and when it doesn't happen big enough, when it looks like it's not going to happen at all, then it's absolutely normal. It's pretty easy, actually, for discontentment to begin to settle in. Right? It's as if there's this, this low-grade um, kind of anger or, or, or frustration that just is constantly simmering. Right? It's constantly simmering in the background of our lives, in the background of how we operate and how we interact with people. And every once in a while, somebody will say something like, okay, um, it seems like you're angry. And you're like, I'm not angry. I'm fine. Every, I'm fine. Everything is fine. Everything is fine. But the truth is, you're frustrated. 
You're frustrated. You're constantly frustrated. You're frustrated with just about everyone, and you're frustrated with just about everything. And for most of us, right, for many of us, this happens somewhere in our early 40s because it, eventually it dawns on us. Listen, I'm not there. I'm not even close to there. In fact, I'm not even sure that I will ever get there. And the truth is, for many of us, we don't even know where there is. And our disappointment with ourselves right, eventually ends up spilling out over into the lives of the people that we're closest to. And see, the problem with disappointment and anger, and again, this is true of all of us, is that anger always isolates, right? Anger always isolates. In fact, it drives us to hide even more. You've seen it, right? Perhaps you've stood on the edge of it. In fact, perhaps maybe for you, you're actually kind of standing on the edge of it right now, peering into it, and you're sitting there, and you feel like I've kind of read your mind, and you're thinking to yourself, okay, how in, how in the world does he know? The truth is, independence is an idol. Right? Independence is a false god, and our quest for independence, our quest to be independent, is dangerous. Right? It's dangerous because we don't think about this, but independence is power. That's why we want it. And power, the more you have, the more you want. And generally, power is intoxicating. Right? And intoxicated people do not make good decisions. They do not listen. In fact, when the goal is independence, right? you've seen this, relationships become nothing more than a means to an end. Everybody's a potential customer. Everybody's a potential client. Everyone's a potential contact. And that just leads to more and more isolation. And so when we accidentally... Or when we purposefully, when we embrace this misguided approach to success, when we define the win as independence, at the end we're going to either end up frustrated because, um, because we aren't there, or if we are there, we're going to be isolated and disappointed when we get there. And so today, and as we begin this new series for these next couple of weeks, I, I just want to kind of poke and I want to prod and I want to do whatever it is that I can do um, to help you and to encourage you um, to, to make a very intentional decision not to be drawn into and not to be sucked into this vortex, right? And for those of you who maybe are on the edge of this right now, maybe everything that you've experienced personally, everything that we've experienced corporately together over this last year and a half or so has kind of made you feel like uh, maybe a little independence is nice, Right? Maybe disconnecting a little bit it isn't so bad after all. Listen, I get it. I understand. I'm with you. I'm wired up the very same way that you are. But listen, independence is not the win. It is not the win. When we pursue independence, we are just setting ourselves up to be isolated, frustrated. And as we're going to see together today, ultimately, ultimately devastated. In 2 Samuel chapter 11, we find the account of the most famous decision ever made by King David. Now, of course, he didn't realize that at the time, right, because none of us, none of us ever do. Um, but at this point, David has actually been king of Israel for about 20 years, and during his 20 years as king, David has amassed enormous wealth, and he has experienced incredible success in just about everything that he has done. Right? You probably know that David, very early on in his life, developed a, a reputation for being a, a terribly fierce and a terribly powerful warrior. Right? He was the king who brought peace to Israel. David was the king who made all the other nations around them fear them. David is the king who conquered the biggest foes, right? literally, that he or his people would ever face. 
David is the king who returned prosperity back to his people. And after 20 years of being king, David's legacy has been secured. Right now he's in his 50s. Right? He, he's not young anymore. He's certainly not that cute little shepherd boy anymore. And again, you know this story. One evening, David got up from his bed and he walked around on the roof of his palace and from his roof, he saw a woman bathing, right? David sees his neighbor um, bathing in the privacy of what um, should have been her own home, right? And let's be honest here, this is probably not the first time that David decides to go wander onto that part of his roof. Um, it's probably not the first time that David decides to, to stare off in, in that particular direction. Um, but on this specific evening, David actually pushes things one step further because he goes and he gets one of his servants to find out who it is exactly that this woman is. And this, this servant of David, this messenger of David, actually takes a, a very, very big risk um, because he tries to, to wave David off from making what would turn out to be um, the, the most destructive decision of his life. Right? This would be the moment that David would give anything to go back and relive. This would be the decision that David would give anything to go back and unmake. And so when his servant returns, he chooses his words so carefully right, and so cautiously. And he actually says to, to King David, he looks at King David and he says, Okay, King David... Um, you, you remember Elam, right? You remember Elam? He's one of your personal bodyguards. You remember that Elam, David? Well, this, this woman, um, this is actually that guy's daughter, right? This is Elam. This is your personal bodyguard's daughter. And not only that, she is also the wife, right? Wife, underlying wife. She is the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Right, honorable, brave Uriah, King David. You, you remember Uriah, right? You, you've, um, he's risked his life for you, right? In fact, he's risking his life for you right now. He, you fought beside this man. And see, this shouldn't have been enough to kind of wave David off from the course of action that he was on. But again, and you, you know this, right? We've seen this. We've experienced this. Powerful people, powerful people have a very, very difficult time listening to regular people. And so then David, David actually sends messengers to go and to get her. Right? And what could they say? I mean, what, what could she say? I mean, he's, he's the king. They spend the night together, right? Probably many nights together. You know the story. Eventually Bathsheba becomes pregnant. And so she sends a letter, she sends a message to David, um, letting David know what's happened. And, and David does what David is in the habit of doing. He does what many of us are in the habit of doing, and that's control outcomes. And so David, in verse 6, um, he sends a message to Joab. Joab is the commander of his army. He is the one who is in charge of Uriah and all the troops. And so David sends a message to Joab, and he says to Joab, I want you to send me Uriah the Hittite. I want you to have Uriah give me a progress report on how the battle is going. So Uriah shows up at the palace, and he meets with David, and David asks him how everything is happening, and he smiles at Uriah and says, Uriah, good job, well done, right, well done. Why don't you go home tonight, since you've been working so hard, Uriah, why don't you go home tonight and just and spend the night with your wife? Uriah leaves the throne room, right, and David, David congratulates himself because outcome controlled. 
The next morning, however, David gets word that Uriah didn't actually go home, that in fact Dave, uh, that Uriah went and did the honorable thing, that he actually went to the entrance of the palace and he spent the night um, outside of the palace with the guards who were actually there in the palace protecting David. And David just cannot believe what he's hearing. And so David sends another messenger to go out and get Uriah and bring Uriah back to the palace before he leaves the city. And Uriah comes back to the throne room. He looks at David. David looks at him and says, Uriah, haven't you come from a long distance? Why didn't you go home? Right? And Uriah knows what David is getting at. And listen to his response. Listen to what he says. The ark Right, the Ark of the Covenant and Israel and Judah, they're all staying in tents and my master Joab and my Lord's men are camped in the open fields. Right, King David, my friends, your soldiers, they're all living in mud and sweat and blood right now. They are eating only what they can carry or kill. I mean, how in the world could I actually go back to my house and eat and drink and lie with my wife? As surely as you live, great King David... I will not do such a thing. To do what you're encouraging me to do would be to dishonor you. Right, guys? This is the person that we want to emulate. Right, men, isn't it true if God has blessed you with a daughter, if you are fortunate enough to have a daughter, isn't it true this is the guy you want your daughter to marry one day? But see, David misses it. He misses it completely. In fact, David is actually put off by it. And so David insists that Uriah spend another night in town in the palace. And this time David leaves nothing to chance. He throws a big feast. He has Uriah come to the feast. He actually gets Uriah drunk very intentionally. And then at the end of the evening when all the wine is gone, he takes Uriah, he points Uriah in the direction of his own home. And he says to Uriah, now go and be with your wife. And, you're, and David is absolutely confident that Uriah will go and do exactly what David would do in this situation if, David, if Uriah was David. But the problem, the problem is that Uriah is nothing like David. And David is far, far from the man that he used to be. Because Uriah, Uriah actually went out and he slept on his mat among David's own servants. He did not go home. Now we're going to pause here. Um, for just a minute, because for, for many of us, right, for many of us, we're, um, we're kind of familiar with this story. And, and we know, or we can pretty much guess what it is that's about to happen next. But see, for David and for Uriah, this moment uh, is new, right? And they're experiencing it the way that, um, that many of us actually experience each of the events in our own lives. Um, they're experiencing it as if each moment is, in fact, disconnected from the moment surrounding it. But, and you've heard me say this before, right? Every single one of us, um, we write the story of our lives one decision at a time. And eventually, right, eventually, no matter what it is that you're going through right now, eventually, everything that you're experiencing in your life right now, eventually, it will all be reduced down to a sentence or two. Right? Everything that we've experienced corporately over the last year and a half, all the pain, all the isolation, all the questions, all the disconnectedness, all of that, eventually we'll look back on this and we'll all summarize this in a sentence or two. The same thing is true for you personally. 
Right? Even the most painful, heartbreaking moments that you may be going through right now, maybe you've gone through recently, eventually you will ba- look back on all of those and you will summarize them in a sentence or two. Right? Five years ago, I went through a really terrible divorce. Right? One sentence. All the pain, all the heartbreak, all the suffering of the divorce, one single sentence. Six years ago, right? six years ago I got arrested. Two years ago I had to drop out of school. Three years ago, my wife and I went through a really, really difficult time when we were separated for a while. Fifteen years ago, my wife was diagnosed, my husband was diagnosed with cancer. Right? Isn't it true? All of these giant life events, all the emotions, all the suffering, all the pain, all the question, eventually, it all gets reduced down to a sentence or two. So here's the question. What's the story that you want to tell. Right? All of us write the story of our lives one decision at a time, and, and obviously, right, certainly some decisions are, are more significant than others. But ultimately, every single decision becomes a part of the story of our lives. And like Uriah, we may in fact find ourselves at some point unable to save our own lives regardless of the decisions that we make. Because that might actually lie in somebody else's hand. But regardless, we can preserve our legacy. And we can always ensure that our story is, in fact, a story that is worth telling. Because, see, here's what I I know about all of you. Here's what I know about you, even though I I may not know you personally. I, I certainly don't know all the details of your life. But you want your story to be a story that is worth telling. Right, guys, this is why we're always trying to get you to go to base camp, right? Tonight, 8 p.m., Brooks Brewery, right? And and ladies, (laughs) ladies, well, this is why we've created the very same experience for you. It's called The Well, and the first one will be on July the 18th. It's going to be at the Unwind Winery in Shelby Township. And so mark your calendars. Back to David. Right, David realizes that he's been outmaneuvered and maybe worst of all, he realizes he's been outmaneuvered by a person who's not even trying to maneuver. He's just trying to do the honorable thing. And so David, of course, goes and he does the the dishonorable thing. In fact, David resorts to doing something that in his pre-king years, right, before the power, before the authority, before the independence, David resorts to doing something. That earlier in his life, David himself would have condemned. And perhaps what's most interesting about this whole thing, at least to me at least, is that David is absolutely convinced that what he's about to do will in fact remain a secret. And so the very next morning, David gets up and he decides to write a letter to Uriah's commander, Joab, And he says this. This is what David writes. He says, put Uriah in the front line where the fighting is fiercest. And then I want you to withdraw from him so that he will be struck down and die. Outcome controlled. Right? What can Joab do? David's the king. Joab obeys the king. And Uriah is killed. 
And when Uriah's wife, when Bathsheba learns that her husband is dead, she um, mourns for him. And after the time of mourning was over, David had Bathsheba brought to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing David had done, it displeased the Lord. Now, other translations uh, say it a lot more clearly than this. They actually say that what David did was evil. It was evil. Because it was. It was evil in the sight of the Lord. And everybody knew. Because what was planned in secret did not remain a secret. It never does. Right? People talk. People connect the dots. The only person in the dark was David. In fact, here's two dots that David never managed to connect. In fact, these are two dots that oftentimes, if we're honest, that we um, can have a challenge connecting in our own lives as well, but they are so connected, right? With this single decision to preserve his independence and to use his power to protect his image, David permanently... Right, David permanently undermined his credibility and his moral authority with his adult children. Right, you read this story for, for yourself. This is the moment, right, and all the other things before, this is the moment where David loses his credibility, all credibility, with his adult children because they knew, right? They knew. It was so obvious, right? It's so obvious. I mean, come on, Uriah dies in battle. Bathsheba mourns for a little while and David just like spontaneously decides to bring her into the palace to comfort her. And oh, what do you know? Um, they decide to get married and all of a sudden she's pregnant. Wow, it's a Christmas miracle, right? Like who, 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 come on. It's so obvious and yet David makes complete sense to him. Never connects the dots. And with this one single decision, right, with this one single decision, David permanently, he permanently undermines his credibility and his legacy. In fact, think about this. What else do you know, come on, think about it, what else do you know about King David? Not shepherd boy David, no, King David. And see, the truth is, right, for many of us, in fact, probably for most of us, um, this story is pretty much it. Because this event, it marked and marred David's reputation. Um, but worse than him losing his credibility as king, David permanently undermined his credibility and his moral authority with his adult children. Please do not miss this. This is so important. David's affair with Bathsheba did not cost him his crown. right? It cost him his family. right? David actually maintained the crown. You can read about it in the rest of 2 Samuel. But the things that were the most important to David, that's where David paid. And he paid in that area of, life, of his life for the rest of his life. Now, it's at this point in the story um, that many times we either forget or sometimes maybe we just stop reading altogether. Um, but despite the fact that David had given God just about every reason in the world imaginable to turn his back on David and to give up on David, in the very next verse, right after we discover that what David did was evil, evil in the sight of the Lord, we read that God actually sends Nathan to David. 
right? You will give up on you long before, long before your heavenly father ever gives up on you. In fact, even though David had done everything possible to, uh, to deserve having God give up on him, God does not give up on him. Your story is not over no matter what chapter your story is in, no matter what the decisions you've made in your life up until this moment um, are, what those decisions are, your story, it is still being written. Now, nobody has access to David because David is the king and, and David is independent and nobody makes a king do what they don't want to do and nobody makes independent people do what they don't want to do, right? Everybody surrounding David at this point before Nathan is getting a paycheck from David. And David has made himself very successfully isolated, inaccessible, and independent, which is always, always, always a recipe for disaster, and King David, right, the very same da King David who killed Goliath, who writes most of the Psalms, he makes a terrible, terrible decision because he actually achieved exactly what many of us, maybe even most of us, are trying to achieve. He achieved complete independence. But because our Heavenly Father does not give up on us, even when we give him every reason imaginable to do so, God sends Nathan to David. And Nathan approaches David in a very interesting, very wise way. Don't miss what Nathan does here. He comes to King David and he says to David, there are two men. Right? This is brilliant if you think about it. He comes to David and says, there's two men, King David. There's two men in a certain town. One of them is rich and the other one is poor. Now this rich man, he has a very large number of sheep and cattle. Um, but this poor man, he really has nothing except for one little baby ewe, one little baby lamb um, that he went out and, and bought. And so he raised it. And this baby lamb, it's grown up with him, it's grown up with his children. It's really more like a, a family pet. It's even share, it even shares his food, it drinks from his cup, um, it even sleeps in his arm in, uh, at night. It's, it's like a daughter to him. Well, a traveler, this is my question, King David, because I, I need your input, I need your wisdom. And see, a traveler has come to this rich man, but the rich man, he, he didn't want to take one of his own sheep or his own cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler. And so instead, he actually went out and he took this baby lamb, this ewe lamb, the one that belonged to the poor man. This is what Nathan says to David. And he's like, okay, great King David, wise King David, I, I need your input. What would you do if this were you? And David, he just absolutely blows up right in front of Nathan and he does the whole like not in my kingdom thing, right? And who's David really mad at? I mean, David's mad at David because David knows what David did. And so David, David responds to Nathan and he has all this anger and all this rage and he says, as surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this deserves to die. To which Nathan is like, okay, King David, time out maybe you don't know, but we don't kill people, right? We don't actually kill people for stealing a sheep. What's going on? What's going on? David's got all this rage, right? He's got all this anger. And then Nathan looks at David and he says to David these very famous words, David, that man that you said should die, you you, David, you are that man. And God has sent me to you because nobody else has access to you. Because congratulations, David, you are independent. 
And because nobody has access to you, because nobody has access to your heart, David, look what you've done. You've made a mess of your family. You have embarrassed yourself publicly. David, you have made a whole series of just atrocious decisions. Why? Why? Why, David? Why did you despise the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? And David hears this. More importantly, the Holy Spirit The Holy Spirit convicts David of his sin in this moment. And if this story wasn't so familiar to so many of us, the next words, the next words would be truly shocking because David looks at Nathan and says, you're right. You're right. I have sinned against the Lord. But the shocking part is that Nathan actually responds and says, but the Lord has taken away. He's actually taken away your sin. God forgave David. But listen, that did not erase the consequences of his dumb, isolated, nobody tells me what to do, I'm independent, I'm the king decision. Everybody eyes up here for a minute. Okay, everybody at home, if you're off doing something on Amazon, come on back just for a minute. Every single one of us, right, every single one of us, me included, has the potential to make this very same kind of a dumb, stupid decision and have to pay this kind of a price for the rest of our lives. God forgave David. But there is a difference. There is a huge difference between forgiveness and consequences. Right? Because of Jesus, forgiveness is simple. But it's still costly. It just doesn't cost us. But the consequences? I mean, come on. If you know this story... If you've actually read the second half of this book, you know the consequences that David has to pay because of his decision are some of the most terrible. They are some of the most heartbreaking consequences that anyone, that anyone would ever have to pay. And perhaps the saddest part of this whole story is actually found in the very first verse. It's the verse that I intentionally skipped as we began our time together because this one single verse, it foreshadows everything that we read about together today, everything that we've experienced together today, and at the same time, it also answers Nathan's question of why. David, why did you despise the Lord by doing what is evil in his sight? Because in the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. But David remained in Jerusalem. David got into trouble not because he was tempted, right? Everybody is tempted. Not because she was beautiful, lots of beautiful people out there, lots of handsome people out there. David got into trouble because he purposefully, 
with a single decision, made himself independent. This is so incredibly important. Please don't miss this. David made himself independent from the only group of people who had access to him. He removed himself from relationship. He removed himself from camaraderie. He removed himself from community. He removed himself from interdependency, which in fact is the real win. And a single decision, right, a decision that seems so inconsequential at the time, because who could know, right? I mean, who could possibly know what the future holds? Jesus tells us that it is inevitable, it is inevitable that stumbling blocks will come into your life. Now, the reason you and I, the reason why we stumble over something is because we don't see it, right? If we saw it, we wouldn't actually stumble over it. If nobody has access to you, if nobody has access to your heart, if nobody knows the details of your life, if you are, right, come on, independent, eventually you, eventually me, eventually we are going to do something stupid. And let's be honest. When we isolate ourselves, it is not only ourselves who pay the price, is it? In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David remained in Jerusalem. See, independence is a trap. Independence is an unworthy goal. Because God actually made you and he created you for community. Who is it that's going to point out that stumbling block that you can't or that you won't see? Right? And if you do stumble, who's actually going to be there to restore you? Right? What's the story that you want to tell and who? Who is actually going to help you tell that story? And see, we want to help you answer this question right here. Community is one of those things that many times we want the least, but when we actually need it the most, that is when it can be and it is the most difficult to find. And we know, right? We know. We know after everything that you've been through in this past year and a half because we've felt it too, right? We've experienced it also. We know that for some of us, maybe for many of us, the whole thought of this right now, the whole thought of, of getting involved in people's lives again and letting other people get involved in my life again, we know that that's like um, a scary thought. For some of us, that is an absolutely terrifying thought, especially at first. And see, that's why this summer, throughout the months of July and August, we have created a whole series of meet-up events for everybody in our congregation, students through adults, right? Because we just want to help you. We want, to help you, we want to help you take a step back into, or maybe a first-time step, into community. And see, for those of you uh, for whom you're participating with us online, and, and for you, right, showing up to some kind of an event somewhere in Oakland or Macomb County, Michigan, that's just not feasible, that's just not possible for you. I am so excited about what we've been talking and what we've been planning as a, as a staff and as a church, um, because we are working to create some very, very specific environments, what we're calling faith family rooms, places that will help you to develop a real sense of community where you can be connected to other followers of Jesus while being connected here at faith, regardless of where it is that you call home. 
Now, the way that you make sure that you know about all the stuff that's happening, um, the easiest thing to do is to simply go to our website, choose the Connect tab, and under the Connect tab, you're going to click on the drop-down that says Small Groups. You'll see this picture right there. And for those of you, again, who are with us online exclusively, and you want to do the same thing, you want to stay in tune with these faith family rooms and hopefully participate with us in one of these, you go to that same Connect tab, and you're going to click on the Faith Family Rooms drop-down, and you'll see this image right there. And so today I want us to wrap up and I want to just simply ask you one more question. Are you willing, are you willing to take a very intentional step away from independence and a step into community, not simply for your sake, but also for the sake of the people who love you the most and who you love the most? I hope so. I hope so. Because that is, as your pastor, that is my personal prayer for you. That is my heart for you. That is my hope for our church. And I am so excited to see how God is going to work to bring people together, to connect them to each other, and to deepen their connection to Jesus, our Savior. Let me pray for you today. Heavenly Father, this is one of those stories. It's one of those events. One of those events that we read about that you have preserved in your scripture, in your word for us. And it, and it hits us in so many different ways. And Father, I know that for some of us this morning, um, we hear this as a warning. But the truth is for others of us, we actually hear this through the lens of regret. And so, Father, my prayer for all of us is that as we hear this today, that first and foremost, we would actually hear it as a reminder of your great love for us. That despite the sin, despite the awfulness that resides in all of us, me included, that who you are, Father, you are the one who never abandons us. You are the one who never turns your back on us. And you always pursue us. In fact, that you would go so far to actually take away our sin through the death and the resurrection of your son, Jesus. Father, um, that is something that, that only you, only you can do. We cannot take away our sin, our own sin, as hard as we try. Only you, Father, only you, Jesus, only you, Holy Spirit, only you can do that for us. And Father, because we do realize when we stop and when we think a moment, if we're honest, we think about who we are and how we're wired up, we recognize that it is against you that we sin. In fact, it's only against you that we sin. But because of your incredible love for us, you have promised to always be at work. You have promised that you will continually be at work making things new. Even when we've made a mess of our past, Father, the story you are writing in our future in your son, it is a new story. It is a story filled with grace. It is a story filled with forgiveness. And it is a story 
that brings glory not to us, but to you, to your son, and to what only he can do. And so in these next few moments, I would just ask, Father, that you hear each of us as we, as we personally and as we silently, as we confess our sin to you, and as we ask you to blot out, to cleanse us, as David would write in Psalm 51, that you would actually create a new heart inside of us. We ask, Jesus, that you would do that for each of us. And Father, because you are the God who is always at work and because you are the God who has taken away our sin through Jesus, we worship you. We recognize you for who you are and for what you've done, that you are the God who gives hope, you are the God who gives life, and you are the God who promises to be with us in every situation and in every circumstance, no matter what. And for that, we worship you. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.